emotion of the day. Uh, both schools celebrated homecoming wins yesterday, so congratulations to both fan bases. And um, this morning, as we look at Psalm 63, we're going to begin a, a new series called Resound. And we're actually going to be taking a, a detailed look at why we sing, right? How would you answer that question? Why do we sing? Um, they're good. Excellent. Joy is a, a primary reason that we sing. Um, but over the next six weeks or so, right? I know that sounds like a long time. We spend about 40% of our gathered time singing. So I want us to understand God's design for singing, and particularly singing in this corporate context. As you look at the entire story of God, singing is a major part. It begins in the Old Testament where people experience the salvation of God. They spontaneously respond in song um, all the way through the New Testament where the church is to encourage one another with hymns and songs and spiritual songs. And Jesus, even on the night that he was betrayed, right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he sang with his disciples. There was something very human about Jesus and his singing. If you are anything like me, if you don't know what to read in Scripture and you just kind of flip open your Bible, you're going to get to the longest book in the Bible, which is the book of Psalms, 150 chapters that are songs that are inspired by God to be sung and prayed back to God. There, um, Many people have articulated this thought that there is a psalm for every season of the soul. So whether you are sorrowful or whether you are rejoicing, whether you are in plenty or you are in want, God in and through his word and in particular through singing wants to meet his people exactly where they are. Worship is where our authentic selves meet the authentic God, right? Worship is where you can truly be you and God can truly be God to you. Worship is the missing link because it's only in God's presence that we're made whole. It's only in God's presence that we actually experience comfort. It's only in God's presence where we actually experience faith. This series, and I'm praying, um, I'm praying this, this will be a timely word for us as a church because we all naturally experience ebbs and flows in our souls. There are times um, when we are sky high and we are rejoicing and we are seeing the majesty and the power of God. And there are times, um, quite honestly, where we're thirsty. There are seasons where we are weary. There are, se- there are times when we need to be renewed and replenished. And that's my prayer um, in the midst of this series is that every person would personally be strengthened and every person would personally be renewed as they encounter the authentic God in all of his power. Singing, and, and we're gonna, I'm going to use these words interchangeably 
singing and worship. I mean, worship is much broader than singing. I mean, worship really is everything that we do before the face of God. It can be anything that we do. It can be whether you eat or drink. Um, Whatever you do could all be to the glory of God. But narrowly, when we say worship over the next six weeks, we're talking about when we gather here and when we sing. So worship is the difference between religious dry orthodoxy and passionate relationship with the Savior, right? Worship is the missing link. Now, (laughs) you might be here and you don't consider yourself a very musical person, and I am with you. Although um, I enjoy from time to time singing karaoke, uh, most of the time I don't even like to hear myself sing in the shower, So, I mean, if you consider yourself here, hey, I'm not a very musical person, you might be tempted to want to check out during this time. But this is my challenge and my invitation to all of my musically challenged friends. Some of us, we might just be merely tolerating singing and hoping um, that it will be over fast and we won't embarrass ourselves. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why is there such an emphasis on singing in the Bible, right? Is this just so that worship leaders can have a job, right? A lot of guys with skinny jeans need employment, so God says, I'm going to inspire the book of Psalms, right? Now, is that, is that why singing is so pronounced in the Bible? Um, is it something different? Is it essential part of being made in the image of God? Is it something that is essential to be able to appreciate all that God has done for us in salvation, right? Um, If you think about it for a moment, if the things that we say we believe are true are true, right? I mean, we have every reason to worship. We have every reason to sing. We have every reason to celebrate because our God has acted on our behalf. And so um, my prayer is that something that we might just assume or something that we might just go through the motions doing week after week take on new significance for us as we consider God's perspective of singing and in particular God meeting his people through singing. This morning we're going to begin our series Why We Sing by looking at the reason that we sing is because we desperately need God. Psalm 63. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read Psalm 63. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Verse 1, O God, you are my God, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would not be a mere recitation of a psalm, but it would become our anthem as your people. I pray that you help us make the connection between where we are currently in the state of our souls and your posture towards us as your people. I pray that you help us to encounter earnestly the way that you are seeking authentic worshipers to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would perform this word among us, that this would characterize deeply who we are as the people of God. I pray that you help us to come in contact with our neediness, but in the midst of that we also connect with your all-sufficiency and your desire to satisfy us beyond all imagination. To do that, we need you to send the Spirit to help us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. I need your Spirit to help me to proclaim this word to these folks that I love. I pray that you would be with us and that this would be for the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Sometimes we, if we're looking at the book of Psalms, you might just kind of skip over the prescript that's at the top. But this one gives us a little bit of a clue about how to interpret this particular psalm. It says it is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, um, throughout this psalm, what we see is this is a psalm when David was the king. And in particular, David was on the run for his life from his son, Absalom. So this is a psalm that is deeply um, desperate in its orientation towards God. I mean, David at this moment, and you could be at this place this morning, David was wondering at these moments, are the promises of God still true for me? Right? I mean, this was a season for David where it looked like the promises of God were in the rearview mirror. They were they were long gone for him. He was a king without a throne. He was a father who was dealing with the loss of a son. This conflict with Absalom could only end one way. It could either end with the death of David himself or with the death of his son. And he found himself wandering in the wilderness. More specifically, if you saw a picture of the wilderness in Judah, you would say it's a desert. So this in fact, was a dry season for David, right? And in the midst of all of those surrounding circumstances, we learn something very important about what it means to be a human and what it is to need God. Now, I already mentioned the book of Psalms is the longest book by chapters in the Bible. There are 150 songs in here. This, If there was a question that said, what would Jesus sing? It would be this book right here, the book of Psalms. 150 psalms, and 
They are the loudest possible statement in the Bible that singing matters to God. Singing matters to God because our hearts matter to God. There's something about music that God has designed for us to uniquely encounter him with our hearts and with our emotions. Emotions. Singing helps us understand the language of our hearts and locate our hearts in reference to who God is. And our first point this morning is worship is characterized by earnest seeking. Worship is characterized by earnest seeking. Verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. There's something about coming together and singing. And there's, there's a couple of options for us when we do this. We can do this very ritualistically, very mechanically, very traditionally, right? We can approach God religiously. We can, and you're probably going to do this probably every time we come together, one of these three things and maybe all three um, in any particular worship service. Yeah, we're just going through the motions, right? That, that's an option. The next option is you want to encounter God What you're most aware of in these moments are your failures, your deficiencies, your sin. And so you keep some kind of respectable distance between you and God. Or because of how God has revealed himself to be a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness towards his people, especially because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can earnestly seek him and know that as we earnestly seek him, we will find him. And what we'll see as we look over this series is that God is actually the one that is seeking us. He's the one that's seeking authentic worshipers in the book of John chapter 4 to worship him in spirit and in truth. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek Seek you. Now, earnest seeking is intensely personal. Listen to the personal pronouns here. Verse 1, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So notice, this isn't an abstract picture of God. This is not the man upstairs. This is not a God out there somewhere. This is not even the God of the Bible. This is my God. The only way that worship can help you in the midst of a wilderness, dry, desert season is for worship to be intensely personal. That this is my God. This is my soul. It faints for you. This is my personal interaction with the living God. And what David is modeling for us here is a personal intimate longing for connection with God, right? And on some level, right, no matter where you are coming from this morning, you are longing for that to be true. And what this psalm tells us is that this is an invitation for us to come. We desperately need God. And in a culture that prides itself on being clean and not being needy, 
what we are saying collectively as a people is we desperately need God. We sing because we need Him, because our souls are made for Him. When you come through these doors, what you're saying is we do not have all the answers, but we know the one that does, and we will approach Him earnestly with our singing. We're saying you're the only one that can meet us. You're the only one that can change us. So why should we earnestly seek God in worship? David knows something that most of us learn the hard way. It's that we have a thirsty soul. That we actually are made to encounter God. That we are made to have communion with Him. That our souls literally long to be satisfied and to drink from the goodness of the grace of God. Right? And most of us, we, I think we get this backwards. Being thirsty is a sign of great health, not a sign of unhealth, right? Actually, it's actually when you're sick that you don't experience thirst. So, as you look inwardly at the condition of your soul, are you thirsty this morning? Do you recognize some kind of longing to be satisfied and to drink from the goodness and the grace of God? I'll share this story with you. I think it happened um, very, very soon after we arrived here in Jonesboro, probably about four and a half years ago. My, my daughter Zoe, I'm thinking, was probably four or five at the time. And she, I never had heard this term or I've heard this term and never seen it play out. She had a rotavirus. And so this thing was gnarly. I mean, it lasted for 10 days. Um, she had a high fever. She couldn't keep anything down. And instead of like a normal sickness where you seem to get a little bit better each day, it seemed like she was getting worse. And I mean, probably as a dad, this is maybe one of my scariest moments because she didn't even have enough strength to hold her head up. And I remember just calling the doctor and, and asking what to do. And he said, if you, if you could just get like a, a dropper of water and get her to take one little dropper of water every hour, she's going to be okay. And I remember holding her in my arms and saying, baby, you, you, you've got to drink. Like, you, you've got to drink to live. And, and I would pray that she would be able to keep down just those drops of water. You know, and thankfully, just... God's kindness sustained her, and she's better. But I think that's a great picture of our souls, right? Most of us are not in touch with the fact that we actually are thirsty and that we need God. And we're actually, the, the Sunday gathering is just kind of a little dropper that we get every week that kind of helps, you know, maybe move us in the right direction, and then we very quickly move on. But what it is designed to be is this life-giving connection with God. We're thirsty, and we sing to the God that wants to quench our thirst. Now, let's look at verse 2. Earnest seeking also takes place together. It takes place corporately. This also is a shock to us as Americans. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So what sustained David in the wilderness 
was not just his private communion with God. What gave him vision in the midst of suffering and wandering was his memories of public worship, where they encountered the power and the glory of God with one another, right? Most of us think, man, if it's just me and Jesus, like, we're cool. Like, that's all I need. And the Bible would say to that, you're absolutely wrong, and your soul will suffer for it. The thing that has always anchored the people of God is a public worship and encounter of the power and the glory of God. It is the power of God that we need to change us in the midst of our situations where only God can act. We need his power. We also need to see and behold his glory because it's that sense of his transcendent majesty and glory that restores a sense of awe. It helps us to keep from shrinking our lives down to the size of our concerns, where it just becomes about us and the things that we have to do this week. When our eyes are open to his power and his glory, we become part of his story. We get to see other people as part of his story. So it's very important for us to see that it is the public gathering, it is the public worship of God together, where you see not only God at work for you, but you see the God at work in their lives and in their lives and in their lives that you actually begin to see that God truly is at work. Because when you are alone, right, and you know this to be true, when you are alone, you feel alone. But when you are in this room and you see God working in this person and God working in this person, you say, my God is real and he's on the throne and he's working for me. That's what sustained David in the midst of the wilderness was his public experiences of worship. Which brings us to point number two. Worship is about experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord. Look at verses three and four. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Worship is about experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord. Another reason that we sing, right? It's not to have some abstract doctrine of the love of God. It is to experience it personally and tangibly. Part of the reason that we gather as the people of God is so God's love can be manifest and poured into your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. The steadfast love of the Lord, that's the covenant, unchanging, unbreakable, unwavering commitment of God for his people, right? This is God saying in this psalm, I will keep you when you can't keep yourself. I will be the one that will sustain you. I will be the one that will keep you. It is the steadfast love of the Lord that is better than life. Now, it's important to understand what David is saying here. He's saying, your steadfast love is better than life. Not that it is the highest experience in life. It actually transcends life. And that's a very important point because if we just make experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord one of the things that we do in this life, right? It'll just be an add-on. It'll just be something extra. But what this is, this is a picture of a transformed heart that has experienced the steadfast love of the Lord that is better than life. 
and only when it is better than life that you can have perspective on the rest of life, right? Because if it's just one thing and another list of things, then, then you know, it's going to be something that we can take or leave. But if we see that this is better than life, then all of the other things that we experience in our life, they kind of lose their luster and their power, right? So the, the things that we're battling, those things lose their power over us when we experience the steadfast love of the Lord. I believe one of the primary reasons that there's a theory of struggle and there's a reason that we struggle, but I think some of us unnecessarily struggle because we don't recognize the power that comes from experiencing the steadfast love of the Lord. Most of us, if we're honest, we view the Christian life as something that we have to do in our own strength. That we're the ones that, like there's this whole world that's beautiful and attractive and sin looks fun. And like, hey, I can identify with you guys, right? I mean, this is, this is how we're all wired. Like there's this, there's this enticement that comes from the world. But then there's this other picture that we have in, in Psalm 63 of the steadfast love of the Lord being better than life. Most of us think that we are the ones that have to keep ourselves from sin, or the Christian life is about not sinning, right? Now, that is the overflow of what happens when you encounter the steadfast love of the Lord. But if you get those two things backwards, it's going to be misery and drudgery. So I'll use this as an example, all right? Imagine, right, Howie Mandel, this is an older show, but Deal or no deal? Anybody watched that show before? All right. So the magic case is right out there, has a million dollars in it, right? Everyone in this room can have the million dollars, but this is the one caveat. All you have to do is not think about the million dollars until this service is over. How's that going to work out for you? right? But that's the way most of us view the Christian life, right? I've got to not think about this stuff. If I don't do this or I don't do this, then I'm going to be righteous. But the, God's primary way of changing us and moving us is experiencing his steadfast love that is better than life. And you know what else? All of those other things in light of the steadfast love of the Lord lose their power on us, right? God changes us by us encountering his love, and then we don't actually want to sin right? But most of us, we make rules, and most of us, we're going to do this on our own, and we're going to start a new Bible study, and I'm going to get up at 5 a.m., and we're going to do this thing instead of, we need to bathe ourselves in the steadfast love of the Lord. And there is no greater picture of the steadfast love of the Lord than the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. That is the measure of his commitment for his people, and it is better than life. What this psalm teaches us is that God intentionally has seasons for us, and especially if you're here in the the wilderness, and especially if you are in a dry place, that you need to bathe yourself exclusively in the steadfast love of the Lord. There is no such thing as sanctification without worship. It has to be a response to who God is and what he's done. So in light of that, the psalmist says, my lips will praise you. I will lift up my hands. Now, 
we have to make a decision here. Is what David is what David saying? Is that prescriptive? Is he telling us that we must lift up our hands and praise him with our lips? Or are we saying that this is descriptive, right? And it depends on which kind of background you come from. Um, you're you're going to tend to interpret this one way. Like, I mean, if you um, grew up maybe in your younger generation and all you're used to is Chris Tomlin concerts and people patting on their chest and doing one of these, right? I mean, that's a pretty normal thing. But if you grew up in a more traditional conservative background, the idea of lifting up your hands in worship is just short of emotional fanaticism, Right? And I want to do something to help us kind of understand, and I think this will be self-explanatory. So we have a video, uh, and this will connect with all the Red Wolf fans here. see a very human experience here. Notice my man with the yellow. Keep your eyes on him. This is where they won. There he is. Look at that. Look at that. Pure joy. Lifting his hands. He might be a charismatic. I'm not sure. That guy in the background. Yeah. These guys raising their hands. Right? That poor guy didn't know that that guy, the the law of physics. Right? An object tends to stay in motion unless it hits something that's much bigger. Right? But what's that a picture of? That's a, uh, that's a picture of experiencing life. I mean, the, the Red Wolves, 0 and 4, about to go 0 and 5, feeling the pressure of the moment, and that guy lets go the touchdown pass, and they win, and they all stood like this. <laughs> or like this, you know? Man, they were like, my lips will praise you. I will lift up my hands, right? But it's not just limited to sports. I think I got an image here from a Taylor Swift concert for us. Yeah, Taylor Swift, right? More people. Uh, 2011 or 12, we went to the Speak Now concert. Taylor Swift, people responding fully alive. The show is there and people raise their hand. Then you can go to the last one, right? Children teach us how to do this. Raise their hands. Why? Because there's joy. Because life has been experienced, right? This isn't some mechanical response in worship or what we do to try to get God to come down. We're not beating ourselves on the chest. But I'm telling you one thing, right? This is, this is the point of this. I'm, this isn't Chad trying to get you to raise your hands. This is not something I want for you. It's, something I want, it's not something I want from you. It's something I want for you. I want you to experience the freedom and joy that you experience in every other aspect of your life in this room, right? I don't want us to be bottled up. So whatever it looks like for you to be fully human, whatever it looks like for you to be fully alive, whatever it looks like for you to experience the steadfast love of the Lord, that's my prayer for you, that you would experience freedom and joy. And I want you to see just through those normal, everyday human experiences, that lifting your hands is a human response. It's not a religious response. It's, it's the indication that you've experienced the steadfast love of the Lord. That's why 
we respond to God physically in worship. It's not because of some charismatic tradition. No, it's because that's what it means to be fully alive as humans. We respond. And if we can respond like that over an 0-4 team that gets their first victory, how much more for the King of kings and the Lord of lords that's defeated sin, death, and the grave? Right? Man, I am in myself. That was good. <laughs> I, mean, I do this all the time. I make myself laugh. Like, no one else laughs at my jokes sometimes, but I, I, I crack myself up. <laughs> and I'll tell you why this is important. Because God wants to meet you where you are, right? You don't have to church it up here, Okay? I'll tell you, this happened to me 10 days ago, 14 days ago. Went on a conference with all the elders, and we were just in North Carolina, and there was just a group of pastors and church members, and we were just praying, and we were singing to God. And they said, if anyone's feeling discouraged right now, could you just raise up your hand? And... If you know me very well, like I'm usually the first guy. It's like, man, I need prayer. Um, and I wasn't actually expecting a whole lot to happen in the midst of that. But there's something as I was there, and I'd taken a run with Hayden, who's one of our elders, on the beach earlier that morning, and I just told him some things that were kind of weighing on my soul. And as these folks gathered around me, they in unison began to pray about the very things that I was feeling discouraged about. And something inside of me broke. I mean, I wept like a baby. Now, does that happen all the time? No. But there's something about those moments in the midst of corporate worship where God lets us know that he's alive, that he is real, and he's concerned with the things that we're concerned about. And that's a gift. And you can't get that in a coffee shop. I don't care who you're sitting across the table from, right? I mean, most people's view of church these days are two people go to a coffee shop, one sneezes and says, God bless you, and we just had church. That's different than encountering the power and the glory of God collectively as his people. That's what we need more than anything as the people of God. Which brings us to our final point. Worship is about being satisfied. Look at verses 5 through 7. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in, your sh- in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So worship is about earnest seeking. It is about, it's also about us encountering God as we are, but it's at the deepest possible level, it's about us being satisfied. That God actually wants to satisfy us with the greatest thing in the universe, and that is Himself. Worship is about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. God is saying through this psalm, I am big enough and that I am good enough to satisfy your every desire. David is saying that when we seek God, 
we will be satisfied. Now, we have the privilege as Americans of like not just having our hunger met, but like who's been hungry for like a specific thing, right? Whether that's like mom's fried chicken on a Sunday afternoon or grandpa's ribs that he makes all the time. I mean, there's, there's sometimes that um, somebody can offer you something um, and nothing else will do except the thing that you're craving. For me, I know this sounds very elementary, but it is a cheeseburger. I love cheeseburgers. You can ask my wife. Now, I don't want, don't bring me any McDonald's. Don't bring me any Burger King. That's, that doesn't count. I'm talking about someone that has painstakingly hand-selected their meat. They have chopped it together. They have mixed it up. Might throw a little sausage in there just to give it a little bit of flavor. Not well done. Perfectly medium with some cheese that's ooey-gooey and melty. A brioche bun that melts in your mouth. There's times when that's what I have to have to be satisfied. And at that moment, right, it doesn't matter what else anyone offers to me. Um, I like kale salad, but if you offer me kale salad, I might punch you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, What David is saying in the midst of this is, if you're seeking the living God with all that you are, and you're saying, my heart is thirsty for you, my flesh faints for you, he's not going to give you a kale salad when you want a hamburger. He's going to satisfy you as with fat and rich food. God is not playing some kind of hide-and-seek game with us. He's saying, I'm going to give you exactly what you want and as much as you want because that's how good I am. I am the God that will satisfy you. And I'm just going to close with this because I think, I think the wilderness season is characteristic for a lot of us, right? If you feel like you're wandering, if you feel like you don't know where the next step will take you, if you feel dry and empty and alone, I think we have to take this invitation that worship is the way forward in the wilderness, right? We, we don't passively wait until we see everything clearly. Worship is the way forward. Look at verses 6 and 7. David is talking about there's times, and this doesn't mean anything's wrong. I think this is a time when God meets with you. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. There's going to be times in your life, not because you've done anything wrong, that you're not going to be able to sleep, Right? whether it's the cares of the world or if it's suffering that's going on in your own life, sleep will leave you. And what David is saying in this psalm and what God is saying to us is that even in the watches of the night, if you've ever been in the military, the watches of the night, that's when it's really dark and no one else is awake. He's saying, God is going to be my help. God is going to be not only the God that satisfies us, but the God that sustains us. So take that as courage. Like if you are in the wilderness and you experiencing tremendous suffering and sorrow, God is saying, I will be your help. The way forward is I can take refuge in the shadow of your wings and sing for joy, not because my circumstances dictate that, because your character compels me to come and to pour out my heart 
The reason that we can approach God in the midst of suffering and in the midst of wilderness seasons is because he's a God that identifies with the suffering of his people. And he gave up his only son on the cross who gave up his life to help us in the midst of our suffering. That's the invitation of this gracious God. So why do we sing? Because God wants to satisfy us, whether it is with rich and fat food, or if you cannot sleep because of your tossing and your turning, God himself says, I will meet you. That is the posture of our God. That's who we get to sing to each and every week. Worship is where our authentic selves meet the authentic God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your desire to meet with us. Thank you that we can be real with you, that we can be vulnerable, that we, can, we don't have to hide in shame. We don't have to disguise our wounds. We can come to you real and raw. We can come to you rejoicing. We can come to you whatever the condition of our souls And we sing to a God that's not far off, but we sing to a God who draws near and inhabits the praise of his people. I pray as we continue this service that you would meet us precisely where we are. In Jesus' name, amen.